Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corrine Pettit, and joining me today for a discussion about topical therapies and the use of alternate medicine modalities is dermatologist Dr. Elizabeth Farley-Prater, who is the medical director and owner of Healthy Skin Dermatology in Oklahoma City, where she treats those who have complex dermatologic problems such as psoriasis with an emphasis on providing patient-centered dermatologic care. Dr. Prater is also an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Oklahoma City and is a member of the American Academy of Dermatology and MPF Guidelines Committee, which is responsible for the assessment of evidence and development of guidelines of care for the management and treatment of psoriasis. Working together, the goal of the committee was to develop guidelines that help ensure the best possible care for individuals who live with psoriasis. Today, we'll focus on the sixth guideline to be released, which is called Guidelines of Care for the Management and Treatment of Psoriasis with Topical Therapy and Alternative Medicine Modalities for Psoriasis Severity Measures. Well, welcome, Dr. Prater. Thank you for taking time to join Soundbites today. So to start our discussion, can you please address why topical medications are the most commonly used agents to treat psoriasis? And when is it appropriate to use a topical versus phototherapy, systemic, or biologic therapies? Well, thank you for having me. Roughly 2% of the population has psoriasis, and thankfully, the majority of those individuals have a mild form of the condition. Because of that, many patients can be well-controlled on topical treatments only. And there are many reasons to consider various forms of systemic therapy, phototherapy, and biologic therapy as well. In my practice, the main reason to start additional treatments is that the condition starts to have a large impact on the quality of life of my patients. Traditionally, severe disease has been defined as having more than 10% of the body involved. However, most dermatologists would agree that you can have 2% of the body involved and still have a pretty severe impact on quality of life. For example, patients with unresponsive genital psoriasis or severe Palmer involvement may have difficulty with personal relationships or the inability to function at work despite good topical therapy. Additional treatments need to be considered for these patients when the topical therapies that we're using and will control disease for the majority of patients are no longer effective. So in general, how do topical medications work to improve psoriasis? So topical therapies work in various ways. Many of them work by modulating the immune system locally at the site of application. Topical steroids have multiple effects, including anti-inflammatory and anti-proliferative effects, and many of our topical treatments that we'll talk today uh, work in somewhat similar fashion. And what factors do you consider when choosing a topical treatment, and when would you choose a topical steroid over other topicals? You've already touched on location of psoriasis and severity. I think it is important to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of our various topical therapies. In my practice, I tend to start with topical steroids to achieve disease control over the first month of treatment. 
And then I may introduce another steroid sparing therapy, such as a vitamin D analog, to help maintain disease control while decreasing some of the side effects from those topical steroids. One thing I found very interesting while reviewing the studies for this guideline on vitamin D analogs was that in most studies, they had comparable efficacy to topical steroids. However, it typically took four to eight weeks to see those effects for vitamin D analogs. Most psoriasis patients are looking for quicker initial responses. And so by combining these treatments, we can have a real positive effect for patients. One other thing to consider is the vehicle of any medication. There are certain areas of the body that respond best to certain vehicles. We have seen this both in practice and there are a few studies that have addressed this as well. Examples of this are that ointments applied overnight to the palms and soles can be much more effective than their corresponding creams or lotions. And for the scalp, a solution, foam-based treatment, or shampoo can often be used to help spread the treatment throughout the entire involved area. So is patient preference a factor as well in the choice of vehicle for, say, a lotion or foam? Great point. You can often argue that the best vehicle is the vehicle the patient's most likely to use. (laughs) And so you bring up an excellent point that in addition to what we may realize might be better for one area or the other, the patient preference is really important. So I've heard there are seven classes of topical corticosteroids. Can you give some examples of topical corticosteroids within classes and why it's important to choose the right potency? Great question. So choosing the right class of topical steroids will help ensure a positive response to treatment, but it'll also minimize the side effects that patients want to avoid, such as skin thinning. It is important to use the lowest potency or smallest class number to get the job done, but to also not be afraid to use the stronger classes when necessary. And that can often be the case for psoriasis patients. Some of the medications that I use commonly in my practice include clobetazole, propionate, and augmented betamethasone dipropionate for class one or ultra high potency steroids, triamcinolone for class four or medium potency, and hydrocortisone 2.5% cream for class seven or low potency use. And would severity be a factor in determining which class you would choose as well? Yes. So severity is very important. In cases that are very severe, we'll often go with stronger steroids. And I also like to really think about not only severity as area covered here, but on thickness and induration of the individual psoriasis plaques. And so for our more are more indurated and thick plaques that could definitely be considered more severe, we're probably gonna need a pretty high potency topical steroid to get the job done there. And how effective are corticosteroids in treating thick chronic psoriasis plaques? Are they effective in treating scalp psoriasis and would it be better to shift to a biologic? I think it is important to treat each patient as an individual. For many patients, topical corticosteroids will be effective, but as you astutely mentioned, sometimes if things become too thick, the topical steroids can't penetrate deep enough to get the job done. For scalp psoriasis, sometimes adding a product with what we call keratolytic activity, like salicylic acid, will be helpful to eat through that scale. Others may need to consider biologics to get adequate control of severe scalp psoriasis. 
For scalp psoriasis in my clinic, I typically like to institute what I call a full court press of high potency topical corticosteroids, a shampoo with tar or salicylic acid, and on occasion, I will add a mineral oil and phenol-based compound that's not discussed in our guideline. At the end of one month, if psoriasis is still causing a large negative impact on the patient's life, it's time to consider a systemic or biologic treatment. So we hear a lot of patients have issues with how difficult treatments can be for the scalp psoriasis due to the hair getting in the way. Isn't difficulty of application also a factor in identifying the right treatment? So yes. So when you're working through treatments, and especially topical treatments for scalp, there's usually some favored vehicles by patients. Typically, I find that patients prefer using solutions, foams, oils, and shampoos, and occasionally sprays on these areas. In my clinic, I try to pay special attention to a few things in this regard to patient preference. This includes how often the patient shampoos their hair, for example. If they are someone who washes their hair once a week, a shampoo-based vehicle would not likely be very effective or helpful for them. And then it also depends on their hair texture and their their scalp's ability to be prone to dryness. That might influence our choice for, for example, maybe using an oil. And are there any side effects, limitations, or even cautions associated with the use of corticosteroids? As with any medication, there are some side effects and cautions with topical steroids. Overuse can lead to thinning of the skin, bruising, stretch marks, and acne-type lesions. There are very rare, more serious side effects, including the suppression of what we call the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or Cushing syndrome. But these are typically a concern when patients are using large amounts of high potency topical steroids to treat large areas of the body for prolonged periods of time. This is why working with your dermatologist or healthcare provider is so important. Many of the patients at risk for more severe side effects should be transitioned to systemic or biologic therapy well before any of these unwanted effects occur. Tachyphylaxis or loss of effectiveness with topical steroids when they've been used for greater than 12 weeks has been observed by many patients and dermatologists over the years. For this reason, it's very important to have a close partnership between patients and dermatologists to implement treatment strategies that are effective for both short-term psoriasis control and long-term psoriasis control. So switching gears here to another type of topical, can you provide an example of calcineurin inhibitors and when they would be used over a corticosteroid? Sure. The topical calcineurin inhibitors, tacrolimus and pimecrolimus, can sometimes be preferred over topical corticosteroids for long-term control of psoriasis, particularly in thin-skinned areas. So we're talking about areas like the face or the genital region. I will often start a patient with an appropriate topical corticosteroid and then transition to a calcineurin inhibitor for maintenance, since most of the studies with these medications measured endpoints at four or eight weeks. And in my experience, they don't work as quickly as some of our steroids we have available. And are there any concerns or risks associated with the use of tacrolimus or pimicrolimus? You know, there are a few. In my experience, the biggest risk for these medications is burning or itching on the application site. 
These medicines also, though, however, have a black box warning for risk of malignancy because their oral counterparts in high doses have been associated with an increased risk of lymphoma. However, multiple studies designed to evaluate whether this risk was present with creams when applied to the skin over long periods of time, even years, have not demonstrated that the same risk applies to the cream form. However, I typically counsel my patients that this is something that they will see on the medication so that they can be prepared and we can discuss any questions at the time of the visit. Finally, we often use these therapies for the treatment of facial involvement. A relatively common side effect includes flushing with the ingestion of alcohol. And although that's not a serious effect, it should be considered prior to prescribing. And how about for the side effects of itching or burning? Is it possible to use another type of topical to ease the side effects? For some people, they will notice that the burning and itching improves over time. Some people will notice if they apply the cream, if it's been cooled, that it'll be helpful. And then sometimes the application in conjunction with corticosteroids may minimize that. But oftentimes we're using these medicines to decrease the usage of steroids as well. And what's the advantage of using a vitamin D analog or tazerotene? Is it better to combine vitamin D analogs or tazerotene with topical steroids or calcineurin inhibitors? Yes, uh, vitamin D analogs, tazerotene, and calcineurin inhibitors are all useful tools in the long-term management of mild and sometimes severe psoriasis. They can effectively be utilized to not only improve psoriasis, but they also decrease the side effects of topical steroids, keep topical steroids more effective by avoiding the tachyphylaxis that we discussed earlier, and in some cases have more long-lasting responses. I think the key is to remember that these treatments often do not show results as quickly as topical steroids. And so by combining treatments, we can often get the best outcomes for our patients. And can topicals be used effectively in combination with other therapies? If so, could you provide examples of such use? Sure. We have multiple studies to support the addition of topical therapies, particularly topical steroids and vitamin D analogs, to systemic treatments, including biologics in patients with severe psoriasis. Oftentimes, even if patients achieve what we call a POSSE 90 or a very good response to a systemic therapy, they may have one area that tends to flare from time to time. Patients need a tool available to rein these small flares in when necessary, and topical therapies are the perfect addition in this situation. And can you use topicals with phototherapy? Topical therapy is a great addition to phototherapy. It's important for patients to know that when using topical vitamin D analogs, they should be applied after a phototherapy session and not immediately before, as the sunlight will render those medications inactive. That's good to know. So how important is a moisturizer in general treatment regime for psoriasis? Are there any contents to look for or stay away from? Another good question. So moisturizers and emollient creams have been shown to improve itching and scaling in patients with psoriasis. While they're unlikely to completely clear a patient, they can really help with symptoms. I typically encourage patients to avoid moisturizers that contain a large number of plant-based ingredients or essential oils, though. A lot of times we'll see these products marketed as all natural or organic. 
This will help the prevention and the development of contact dermatitis, which is irritation to ingredients in the moisturizers. And that's the number one complication that we see with their use. And are salicylic acid and coal tar still considered useful given all the newer topicals that seem to be more effective combinations of treatment? In my practice, I still find both of these agents useful, and there's evidence to support their continued use in the treatment of psoriasis. In my personal practice, I still incorporate both of these therapies, in particular to treat moderate scalp psoriasis. While they may not be quite as effective on their own, we can definitely combine them with other treatments to achieve better results for our patients. And can you please explain what is proactive treatment as mentioned in the guidelines? So proactive treatment is the concept of using a topical medication in an area that is particularly prone to psoriasis flares, even when clear to prevent recurrence in that area. While proactive treatment can be helpful, I generally recommend against it in my practice with topical steroid usage, basically in the intent to try to prevent skin atrophy and other side effects, but it definitely has been used and is probably beneficial for many of the medicines we discussed today. Are there any topicals on the horizon that our listeners should be aware of? Yes, there are quite a few different things on the horizon. Psoriasis treatment, including topical treatments, is a pretty rapidly evolving field. And while there's numerous agents being studied at this time, one interesting novel treatment is topical to Pinaroff cream. It's shown some pretty promising results in clinical trials so far. Its anti-inflammatory properties are via activation of what's called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. And I find this very interesting because that's actually the same receptor that is thought to be responsible for the effectiveness of coal tar. So it's kind of a a similar mechanism of action, but a completely new way of presenting with that treatment mechanism. That's really good news. So this guideline also includes the use of alternative medicine. Why did the guidelines committee feel it was important to add the use of alternative medicine? So alternative and functional medicine are rapidly evolving fields and patients and just the world in general shows an increasing interest in combating many facets of disease through these treatments. To me, it's important that we as dermatologists are aware of developments in this arena to better serve our patients. At the present time, there's insufficient evidence to support most of these treatments, but I personally think it's very important to acknowledge them. While alternative medicine alone will often lead to insufficient responses, incorporating complementary alternative medicine with our traditional Western medicine can often be beneficial in my experience. Therefore, to me, including them in the guideline makes sense. And were there any areas of alternative medicine that stood out regarding evidence? So when reviewing things, of all the complementary alternative medical treatments discussed, the most promising appear to be curcumin and stress reduction. There's limited data overall, and more high-power studies are necessary to evaluate both of these treatments for psoriasis, but the initial studies we looked at were promising. In particular, I think patients and dermatologists alike have appreciated over the years how emotional and physical stress can have a real impact on psoriasis flares. However, many of the modalities discussed in the guidelines, including fish oil supplementation, zinc supplementation, and oral vitamin D supplementation, 
were all shown not to be effective. Well, do you have any final comments you'd like to share with our listeners about the use of topical therapies? If I could share one thing with the listeners and individuals who are struggling with psoriasis or have a loved one struggling with psoriasis, I think the overall message is is that we have really good treatments out there. It's a great time to have psoriasis if there is such a thing. And so working with your healthcare provider or dermatologist, we should be able to find a good way to control your psoriasis and just please reach out to us so we can use some of these treatments and help you get your life back on track. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Prater, for taking time to join Soundbites to discuss guidelines of care for the use of topicals, alternative medicine modalities, and severity measures. We appreciate the insight you've provided today. Yes, thank you. To continue to learn more about topical treatment options, contact the Patient Navigation Center by calling 1-800-723-9166, option 1, or by email at education at psoriasis.org. The guidelines is one of six addressing the management and care of psoriasis. To hear other guideline episodes, please visit psoriasis.org forward slash watch hyphen and hyphen listen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.